Section 21 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. From a Roman Notebook, Part 1. December the 28th, 1872. In Rome again for the last three days. That second visit which, when the first isn't followed by a fatal illness in Florence, the story goes that one is doomed to pay. I didn't drink of the fountain of Trevi on the eve of departure the other time, but I feel as if I had drunk of the Tiber itself. Nevertheless, as I drove from the station in the evening, I wondered what I should think of it at this first glimpse. Hadn't I already known it? All manner of evil, perhaps. Paris, as I passed along the boulevards three evenings before to take the train, was swarming and glittering, as befits a great capital. Here in the black, narrow, crooked, empty streets, I saw nothing I would fain regard as eternal. But there were new gas lamps round the spouting triton in the Piazza Barberini, and a newspaper stall on the corner of the Condotti and the Corso. Salient signs of the emancipated state. An hour later I walked up to the Via Gregoriana by Piazza di Spagna. It was all silent and deserted, and the great flight of steps looked surprisingly small. Everything seemed meagre, dusky provincial. Could Rome, after all, really be a world city? That queer old Rococo garden gateway at the top of the Gregoriana stirred a dormant memory. It awoke into a consciousness of the delicious mildness of the air. And very soon, in a little crimson drawing-room, I was reconciled and reinitiated. Everything is dear in the way of lodgings, but it hardly matters as everything is taken, and someone else paying for it. I must make up my mind to a bare perch. But it seems poorly perverse here to aspire to an interior, or to be conscious of the economic side of life. The aesthetic is so intense that you feel you should live on the taste of it, should extract the nutritive essence of the atmosphere. For positively, it's such an atmosphere. The weather is perfect. The sky as blue as the most exploded tradition fames it. And the whole air, glowing and throbbing with lovely colour, the glitter of Paris is now all gaslight. And oh, the monotonous miles of rain-washed asphalt. December the 30th. I've had nothing to do with the ceremonies. In fact, I believe there'd been hardly any. No midnight mass at the Sistine Chapel. No silver trumpets at St. Peter's. Everything is remorselessly clipped and curtailed. The Vatican in deepest mourning. 
but I saw it in its superbest scarlet in 69. I went yesterday with L to the Colonna Gardens, an adventure that would have reconverted me to Rome if the thing weren't already done. It's a rare old place, rising in mouldy, bosky terraces and mossy stairways and winding walks from the back of the palace to the top of the Quirinal. It's the grand style of gardening and resembles the present natural manner as a chapter of Johnsonian rhetoric resembles a piece of clever contemporary journalism. But it's a better style in horticulture than in literature. I prefer one of the long-drawn blue-green colonna vistas with its maimed and mossy-coated garden goddess at the end to the finest possible quotation from a last-century classic. Perhaps the best thing there is the old orangery with its trees in fantastic terracotta tubs. The late afternoon light was gilding the monstrous jars and suspending golden checkers among the golden-fruited leaves. Or perhaps the best thing is the broad terrace with its mossy balustrade and its benches. Also its view of the great naked Torre di Nerone, I think, which might look stupid if the rosy brickwork didn't take such a colour in the blue air. Delightful, at any rate, to stroll and talk in the afternoon sunshine. January the 2nd, 1873. Two or three drives with A, one to St Paul's without the walls and back by a couple of old churches on the Aventine. I was freshly struck with the rare distinction of the little Protestant cemetery at the gate, lying in the shadow of the black sepulchral pyramid and the thick-growing black cypresses. Bathed in the clear Roman light, the place is heartbreaking for what it asks you in such a world as this to renounce. If it should, quote, make one in love with death, to lie there, unquote. That's only if death should be conscious. As the case stands, the weight of a tremendous past presses upon the flowery sod, and the sleeper's mortality feels the contact of all the mortality with which the brilliant air is tainted. The restored basilica is incredibly splendid, it seems a last pompous effort of formal Catholicism, and there are a few more striking emblems of later Rome, the Rome foredoomed to see Victor Emmanuel in the Quirinal, the Rome of abortive councils and unheeded anathemas. It rises there gorgeous and useless on its miasmic site with an air of conscious bravado a florid advertisement of all the superabundance of faith. Within it's magnificent, and its magnificence has no shabby spots, a rare thing in Rome. Marble and mosaic, alabaster and malachite, lapis and porphyry 
encrusted from pavement to cornice, and flash back their polished lights at each other with such a splendour of effect that you seem to stand at the heart of some immense prismatic crystal. One has to come to Italy to know marbles and love them. I remember the fascination of the first great show of them I met in Venice at the Scalzi and Gesuetti. Colour has in no other form so cool and unfading a purity and lustre. Softness of tone and hardness of substance. Isn't that the sum of the artist's desire? G, with his beautiful, caressing, open-lipped Roman utterance, so easy to understand, and to my ear, so finely suggestive of genuine Latin, not our horrible Anglo-Saxon and Protestant kind, urged upon us the charms of a return by the Aventine and the sight of a couple of old churches. The best is Santa Sabina, a very fine old structure of the 5th century, mouldering in its dusky solitude and consuming its own antiquity. What a mass of heritage Christianity and Catholicism are leaving here. What a substantial fact in all its decay, this memorial Christian temple, outliving its uses among the sunny gardens and vineyards. It has a noble nave, filled with a stale smell which, like that of the onion, brought tears to my eyes, and bordered with twenty-four fluted marble columns of pagan origin. The crudely primitive little mosaics along the entablature are extremely curious. A Dominican monk, still young, who showed us the church, seemed a creature generated from its musty shadows and odours. His physiognomy was wonderfully de l'emploi, and his voice, most agreeable, had the strangest jaded humility. His lugubrious salute and sanctimonious impersonal appropriation of my departing Frank would have been a master touch on the stage. While we were still in the church, a bell rang that he had to go and answer. And as he came back and approached us along the nave, he made, with his white gown and hood and his cadaverous face, against the dark church background, one of those pictures which, thank the muses, have not yet been reformed out of Italy. It was the exact illustration for insertion in a text of heaven knows how many old romantic and conventional literary Italianisms. Plays, poems, mysteries of Udolfo. We got back into the carriage and talked of profane things and went home to dinner. Drifting recklessly, it seemed to me, from aesthetic luxury to social. On the 31st, we went to the musical Vesper service at the Jesu, hitherto done so splendidly before the Pope and the Cardinals. The manner of it was eloquent of change. No Pope, no Cardinals, and indifferent music. But a great mise-en-scene, nevertheless. 
the church's gorgeous, late renaissance of great proportions, and full, like so many others, but in a pre-eminent degree, of 17th and 18th century Romanism. It doesn't impress the imagination, but it richly feeds the curiosity, by which I mean one's sense of the curious, suggests no legends, but innumerable anecdotes a la Stendhal. There is a vast dome filled with a florid concave fresco of tumbling foreshortened angels, and all over the ceilings and cornices a wonderful outlay of dusky gildings and mouldings. There are various Benini saints and seraphs in stucco sculpture astride of the tablets and door-tops, backing against the rusty machinery of coppery nimby and egg-shaped cloudlets. Marble, damask and tapers in gorgeous profusion. The high altar, a great screen of twinkling chandeliers. The choir perched in a little loft high up on the right transept, like a balcony in a side scene at the opera, and indulging in surprising roulades and flourishes. Near me sat a handsome, opulent-looking nun, possibly an abbess or prioress of noble lineage, and a holy woman of such a complexion listened to a fine operatic baritone in a sumptuous temple and received none but ascetic impressions? What a cross-fire of influences does Catholicism provide? January the 4th A drive out with A out of Porta San Giovanni and along Via Appianuova. More and more beautiful as you get well away from the walls, and the great view opens out before you. The rolling green-brown dells and flats of the Campania. The long, disjointed arcade of the aqueducts. The deep-shadowed blue of the Alban hills, touched into pale lights by their scattered towns. We stopped at the ruined basilica of San Stefano, an affair of the fifth century rather meaningless without a learned companion, but the perfect little sepulchral chambers of the Pancratii, disinterred beneath the church, tell their own tale in their hardly dimmed frescoes, their beautiful sculptured coffin, and the great sepulchral slab. It is still the tomb of the Valerii adjoining it, a single chamber with an arched roof, covered with stucco mouldings perfectly intact, exquisite figures and arabesques as sharp and delicate as if the plasterous scaffold had just been taken from under them. Strange enough to think of these things, so many of them as there are surviving, their immemorial eclipse in this perfect shape and coming up like long-lost divers on the sea of time. January the 16th A delightful walk last Sunday with F to Monte Mario. We drove to Porta Angelica, the little gate hidden behind the right wing of Benini's colonnade, and strolled thence up the winding road to the Villa Melini, 
where one of the greasy peasants huddled under the wall in the sun admits you for half a franc into the finest old ilex walk in italy it is all vaulted grey-green shade with blue campagna stretches in the interstices the day was perfect the still sunshine as we sat at the twisted base of the old trees seemed to have the drowsy hum of midsummer and that charm of italian vegetation that comes to us as its confession of having scenically served to weariness at last for some pastoral these many centuries a classic in a certain cheapness and thinness of substance as compared with the english stoutness never left a thirst it reminds me of our own and it is relatively dry enough and pale enough to explain the contempt of many unimaginative britons but it has an idle abundance and wantonness a romantic shabbiness and dishevelment at the villa Melini is the famous lonely pine which tells so in the landscape from other points bought off from the axe by i believe sir george beaumont commemorated in a like connection in wordsworth's great sonnet he at least was not an unimaginative briton as you stand under it its faraway shallow dome supported on a single column almost white enough to be marble seems to dwell in the dizziest depths of the blue its pale grey-blue boughs and its silvery stem make a wonderful harmony with the ambient air the villa Melini is full of the elder italy of one's imagination the italy of boccaccio and ariosto there are twenty places where the florentine storytellers might have sat round on the grass outside the villa walls beneath the overcrowding orange bars straggled old italy as well but not in boccaccio's velvet a row of ragged and livid contadini some simply stupid in their squalor but some downright brigands of romance or of reality with matted locks and terribly sullen eyes A couple of days later I walked, for old acquaintance sake, over to San Onofrio on the Janiculum. The approach is one of the dirtiest adventures in Rome, and though the view is fine from the little terrace, the church and convent are of a meagre and musty pattern. Yet here, almost like pearls in a dunghill, are hidden mementos of two of the most exquisite of italian mines Torquato tasso spent the last months of his life here and you may visit his room and various warped and faded relics the most interesting is a cast of his face taken after death looking like all such casts almost more than mortally gallant and distinguished but who should look all ideally so if not he in a little shabby chilly corridor adjoining is a fresco of leonardo 
a virgin and child with the Donatorio. It is very small, simple and faded, but it has all the artist's magic, that mocking, elusive refinement and hint of a vague arrière-pensée which marked every stroke of Leonardo's brush. Is it the perfection of irony or the perfection of tenderness? What does he mean? What does he affirm? What does he deny? Magic wouldn't be magic, nor the author of such things stand so absolutely alone if we were ready with an explanation. As I glanced from the picture to the poor, stupid little red-faced brother at my side, I wondered if the thing mightn't pass for an elegant epigram on monasticism. Certainly, at any rate, there is more intellect in it than under all the monkish tonsures it has seen coming and going these three hundred years. January the 21st the last three or four days I have regularly spent a couple of hours from noon baking myself in the sun of the Pincio to get rid of a cold. The weather perfect, and the crowd, especially today, amazing. Such a staring, lounging, dandified, amiable crowd. Who does the vulgar stay-at-home work of Rome? All the grandees and half the foreigners are there in their carriages, the bourgeoisie on foot, staring at them, and the beggars lining all the approaches. The great difference between public places in America and Europe is the number of unoccupied people of every age and condition sitting about early and late on benches and gazing at you from your hat to your boots as you pass. Europe is certainly the continent of the practised stare. The ladies on the Pincio have to run the gauntlet, but they seem to do so complacently enough. The European woman is brought up to the sense of having a definite part in the way of manners, or manner, to play in public. To lie back in a barouche alone, balancing a parasol and seeming to ignore the extremely immediate gaze of two serried ranks of male creatures on each side of her path, save here and there to recognise one of them with an imperceptible nod, is one of her daily duties. The number of young men here, who like the Cenobites of old, lead the purely contemplative life, is enormous. They muster in a special force on the Pincio, but the Corso all day is thronged with them. They are well-dressed, good-humoured, good-looking, polite, but they seem never to do a harder stroke of work than to stroll from the Piazza Colonna to the Hôtel de Rome, or vice versa. Some of them don't even stroll, but stand leaning by the hour against the doorways, sucking the knobs of their canes, feeling their back hair, and settling their shirt cuffs. At my cafe in the morning, several stroll in already at nine o'clock in light, in evening, gloves. But they order nothing, turn on their heels, glance at the mirrors, and stroll out again. 
when it rains they herd under the porte cochere and in the smaller cafes yesterday prince umbert's little primogenito was on the pincio in an open landau with his governess he's a sturdy blond little man and the image of the king they had stopped to listen to the music and the crowd was planted about the carriage wheels staring and criticising under the child's snub little nose it appeared bold cynical curiosity without the slightest manifestation of loyalty and it gave me a singular sense of the vulgarization of rome under the new regime when the pope drove abroad it was a solemn spectacle even if you neither kneeled nor uncovered you were irresistibly impressed but the pope never stopped to listen to the opera tunes and he had no little popelings under the charge of superior nursemaids whom you might take liberties with the family at the quirinal make something of a merit i believe of their modest and inexpensive way of life the merit is great yet representationally what a change for the worse from an order which proclaimed stateliness as part of its essence the divinity that doth hedge a king must be pretty well on the wane but how many more fine old traditions will the extremely sentimental traveller miss in the italians over whom that little jostled prince in the landau will have come into his kinghood the pincio continues to beguile it's a great resource i am forever being reminded of the aesthetic luxury as i called it above of living in rome to be able to choose of an afternoon for a lounge respectfully speaking between st peter's and the high precinct you approach by the gate just beyond the villa medici counting nothing else is a proof that if in Rome you may suffer from ennui, at least your ennui has a throbbing soul in it. It is something to say for the Pincio that you don't always choose St. Peter's. Sometimes I lose patience with its parade of eternal idleness, but at others this very idleness is balm to one's conscience life on just these terms seems so easy so monotonously sweet that you feel it would be unwise would be really unsafe to change the roman air is charged with an elixir the roman cup seasoned with some insidious drop of which the action is fatally yet nonetheless agreeably lowering January the 26th, with S to the Villa Medici, perhaps on the whole the most enchanting place in Rome. The part of the garden called the Boschetto has an incredible, impossible charm. An upper terrace behind locked gates, covered with a little dusky forest of evergreen oaks. Such a dim light as of a fabled haunted place, 
such a soft suffusion of tender grey-green tones, such a company of gnarled and twisted little miniature trunks, dwarfs playing with each other at being giants, and such a shower of golden sparkles drifting in from the vivid west. At the end of the wood is a steep circular mound, up which the short trees scramble amain, with a long mossy staircase climbing up to a belvedere. This staircase, rising suddenly out of the leafy dusk to you don't see where, is delightfully fantastic. You expect to see an old woman in a crimson petticoat with a distaff come hobbling down and turn into a fairy and offer you three wishes. I should name my own first wish that one didn't have to be a Frenchman to come and live and dream and work at the Académie de France. Can there be for a while a happier destiny than that of the young artist, conscious of talent and of no errand but to educate, polish and perfect it, transplanted to these sacred shades? One has fancied Plato's Academy, his gleaming colonnades, his blooming gardens and Athenian sky. But was it as good as this one, where Monsieur Hébert does the platonic? The blessing in Rome is not that this or that or the other isolated object is so very unsurpassable, but that the general air so contributes to interest to impressions that are not as any other impressions anywhere in the world. And from this general air, the Villa Medici has distilled an essence of its own, walled it in, and made it delightfully private. The great façade on the gardens is like an enormous Rococo clock face, all encrusted with images and arabesques and tablets. What mornings and afternoons one might spend there, brush in hand, unpreoccupied, untormented, pensioned, satisfied, either persuading oneself that one would be doing something, in consequence of not caring if one shouldn't be. End of section 21